Our sermon this morning comes from Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 9. Romans chapter 8 and verse 9. Hear now the word of God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Let us pray together. Father, we believe what we are about to do as we sit under the teaching of your word to be perhaps some of the most important time that we have spent this week. We believe that your word is living and active. We believe that it is sharper than any two-edged sword. We believe that your word is able to separate us from our sin. We believe your word is sufficient for life and godliness and all things. We believe your word is the perfect revelation of the one true God. And we now ask you to come help us to understand it. That you would help us to cherish it and to rejoice in the God to whom it points. I pray for my friends here this morning, Father, who need you, who walk into this building this morning, perhaps with anguish in their soul, or confusion, or uncertainty in their future. I pray for those, dear Lord, who need to know there is a God who is sovereign in the heavens and sovereign upon earth, who holds all things In his hand, they need to know that two sparrows are sold for yet a penny, and yet not one falls to the ground apart from your will. And so please come, we pray. Help us. We believe what we are about to do would be a colossal waste of our next hour if you do not come. And speak to us through your word, by your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. At the end of the Roman persecution of the Christian church in the middle of the 4th century, a movement began called the monastic movement. There were a group of Christians who actually wanted to be martyred, thought that would be a good way to die. And because the persecution ended, they chose other self-imposed hardships, namely living in isolation in the wilderness. Perhaps they were following the example of John the baptizer as he too fled from civilization, fled from the world, if you will, fled from the temptations that the world brings to seek after a spiritual life. One of these desert fathers was a man named Simeon, some called, sometimes called Simeon the Stylite. Simeon sought a life of solitude in pursuit of spiritual contemplation. Unfortunately for Simeon, though, many found his insights into God's Word particularly profound. And so as he went out into the desert, many would come out to hear from him. And his solitude was often spoiled. Well, in order to flee from these pilgrims, in 423, Simeon happened upon some ruins. There in the ruins, he found a pillar about 10 feet tall. Simeon climbed up on top of that pillar, and there he stayed for the next six years. Unfortunately, once again for Simeon, many felt that was somewhat odd, worth seeing, I guess. And so rather than discouraging the pilgrims, it just brought more. Perhaps they wanted to see if this man was out of his mind. Or maybe they just wanted to know what is it that compelled him to do such a radical act of self-flagellation. And so many came and flocked to Simeon. They liked his pole. In fact, they began to build him more poles. The pole that Simeon spent the rest of his life on was actually 60 feet tall. At the top of this pole, there was a three-foot-by-three-foot platform where Simeon spent 37 years without coming down. I wonder, 
Are you spiritual? I'm wondering if we even know what that means. I wonder if Simeon was spiritual. Perhaps it's more spiritual to live in a desert than it is in the city. Maybe it's more spiritual to live off the ground than on it. I guess the higher the better, perhaps. But are you spiritual? It seems like everyone today wants to be spiritual, but I find it confusing that no one seems to understand what they mean by that, or at least everyone has their own idea of spirituality. You go to the bookstore or walk into Barnes & Noble and walk their religion aisle and you will find many diverse and varied ideas of spirituality. You go on the internet and you type in spirituality and trust me, you will get all sorts of ideas. You will see websites about angels and near-death experiences and ancient pagan religions. In fact, I did just that this week. I typed in spirituality into my search engine and one of the first hits that I received was a link entitled, Spiritual People Are More Likely to Be mentally ill. Perhaps that's true. I've been accused of worse, of course. I think perhaps what makes this idea of spirituality appealing is because it's, it's open to whatever we want to make it to be. We get us define what it is and claim that belongs to us. But I wonder if God has something to say about this. I wonder if it's true that true spirituality is whatever you desire it to be. It seems to me that Romans 8 teaches us that spirituality is contrary to our popular opinion, not open to definition, that it is indeed defined by God. As we see here in verse 9, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. I would suggest to you this morning that that is what it means to be spiritual, at least in the biblically defined sense. It is to have the spirit of God dwelling within our lives. If you were here last week, you remember that we considered that we are born not in the spirit, but we are actually born in what the Bible calls the flesh. We are, in fact, imprisoned in the flesh. That is, we have an internal desire towards rebellion and towards sin. We are imprisoned there until we are let free. Verse 7 of Romans chapter 8 describes this prison for us when it says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. And so there is an inability for those who are born in the flesh. That is, they are unable to obey God's law. In fact, it's even worse for, according to verse 8, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And so if you and I remain in the flesh, we have no opportunity, no ability to actually please our maker. So what then should we do? Well, we, according to verse 9, must receive the Spirit of God. You, however, are not in the flesh, he says, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. And we considered this last week, that God's Spirit lives in you. We not only see that here in verse 9, but if you look in verse 11, we see it once again reaffirmed if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. There it is again. He continues in verse 11 and saying um, that if he dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit. What? That dwells in you. And so we discovered last week by looking into God's word that you are the home of the spirit of God. You are his temple. You are his address. And he has come into your life and he has freed you from the flesh. He has indeed transformed you. In fact, if you are in Christ... You are a new creation. All things are new. That transformation in our lives has been brought by the Spirit. Therefore, the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is not simply that a Christian affirms a set of beliefs. It is not that a Christian has been baptized or a Christian has joined a church or a Christian was raised in a particular family. Becoming a Christian is more than a decision. It is more than accepting information. It is more than being religious. It is being indwelt by the Spirit of God Himself who removes you from the flesh and places you in His domain as we shall see in a moment. In fact, John MacArthur put it this way. The Spirit is to the believer what God the Creator is to the physical world. Without God, the world would not exist. Without the Spirit, a Christian would not exist as well. God dwells in us through his spirit. Right now, as you sit here, the spirit of God, believe it, is in you, living and forevermore shall be. Hallelujah, indeed. Amen, indeed. I want to, if we can, to consider the impact 
of this glorious reality. I want to consider the consequences of this fellowship that you and I now have and forevermore shall have by being indwelt by the Spirit of God. I want to consider what the Bible says is the spiritual life. In fact, I believe in my study of this text, we see five realities, five consequences of the indwelling spirit in our life. Number one, we see the indwelling spirit frees you from the flesh. Number two, the indwelling spirit secures you for Jesus. Number three, the indwelling spirit gives life to your spirit. Number four, the indwelling spirit gives life to your bodies. And number five, the indwelling spirit obliges you to kill the flesh. We're going to consider these in a moment, Christian, and I think you would do well to pay attention. For you shall learn from this scripture who you are and to whom you belong. I believe that these are glorious and majestic and grand truths, and I believe you perhaps would do well to pray even now, God help me to hear your word and to cherish it as I ought. If you are here this morning and you are not a Christian, we are so pleased that you have come to spend some time with us. But I do want to tell you this morning from God's word, as we shall see very clearly, that you do not possess the spirit of God. But the great thing is you can. Today you can. God can come and indwell you and forevermore shall be. I pray that God will give you eyes to see these truths. Let's first of all consider, number one, the indwelling spirit frees you from the flesh. We see this here in verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Now, I understand this will be somewhat of a review. We've kind of covered this last week, but I think I just want to spend a moment and making sure we understand what it is the Bible is teaching when it says we have been freed from the flesh. In fact, you see that little if there, at the, uh, right there in uh, verse 9, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Don't let that give you too much trouble. So I think that if really has the meaning of sense, sense the spirit of God dwells in you. Right? You could say to your spouse, for instance, if you love me, do such and such. And what you're really saying is, is since you love me, right? Hypothetically, your, your wife says, if you love me, massage my feet. Right? She's not calling in the question whether you, she, you actually love her, but she's in a sense saying, since you love me, will you massage my feet? And so I believe this is what the scripture is telling us. Since we have the spirit of God who dwells in us, we have been set free from the flesh. We are no longer in the flesh, but we are in the spirit. What this means is that you and I, Christian, are no longer under the control of the flesh that we were born into, but we are now under the control of the spirit. We are under his sway, under his influence, under his empowerment. He, uh, the third person of God who indwells us, is the primary influencer in our life. Now, if you worshiped this morning, if your heart sang to God himself this morning, if you prayed earnestly this morning, even now, if you are listening with great intent, I believe that to be the spirit of God working in you. I believe that to be evidence that you are no longer in the flesh, but in the spirit. He has given you new thoughts. New dreams, new ambitions, new desires, new longings, new hopes, new plans. This is the Spirit's work. Of course, the question that is then raised, if I am no longer in the flesh, why is it that I still sin? I trust that you do. Certainly I do. I think God is well aware of this. So there's no sense in hiding it. We all do. But why? If, if I'm, what I'm saying is right, if in fact what if uh, Romans 8 9 is right, I am no longer in the flesh, why then do I still follow after the flesh? Well, the reality is when he says we're not in the flesh, what Paul means by that is you are no longer under the, the controlling domination of the flesh. You are no longer unable to resist sin. You are no longer unable to resist temptation. We saw in verse 7, we want, we're at one time, we could not, inability, obey God. We could not please God. That's the consequences of living in the flesh. But now we have been set free from that. And now the spirit begins to work in our life to empower us to overcome these tendencies. But the flesh is still with us, even though we're not in it. We were once, if you could use this metaphor, we were once imprisoned by the flesh under its control. Now we have imprisoned the flesh. He's our prisoner, but he's a rebellious prisoner. Right? He's living in our house in shackles, but he is not nice to live with. And so there will be an ongoing struggle, an ongoing battle, but nevertheless, the spirit ought to be the dominating influence in your life, for you have been set free from the flesh. Christian, you are in the spirit. 
You may need to grow in this relationship with the Spirit. You may desire new experiences with this fellowship of the Spirit. But know this, you are in the Spirit, for you have been set free from the flesh by the indwelling Spirit. Number two, you see the indwelling Spirit secures you for Jesus. Look at the end of verse 9. He says, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. And so Paul puts this in the negative, but I believe the opposite to be true as well. He says, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Therefore, anyone who does have the Spirit of Christ does belong to Jesus. So I say to you this morning, because you are indwelt by the Spirit of God, you are not your own. In fact, you have been bought, haven't you, with a price. And the Spirit of Christ has sealed that relationship with ever, forever. You, Christian, belong to Jesus this morning because you are indwelt by his Spirit. You, you, you of all people, belong to Jesus. In fact, the scripture tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 19, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. I appreciate what John Piper says in commentating on this verse. He says that Christ has both bought you and claimed you in order to secure for himself a people for himself, right? We belong to Jesus in two ways, what 1 Corinthians tells us. One, he has purchased us, and number two, he indwells us. Right, there was once a time in this country in which you could obtain a piece of land by just going out west, putting your flag in it, and living there. Right, we call that homesteading. You could also obtain a piece of property by purchasing it. Well, Christ has done both for you. He has purchased you with his blood. He has died upon the cross to pay for your redemption, to buy you back, and therefore he has bought you. But that's not all he has done. He has then sent his spirit to live in you, to place his flag in your life, and you are his both by purchase and, if you will, by homesteading. The spirit of God homesteads inside of you, and you therefore belong to him. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Anyone who does have the spirit of Christ does belong to him. You have been bought by the blood of Jesus. You have been claimed by the spirit of Jesus. You are not your own. You belong to Jesus. And I believe this ought to give you great, great assurance. Great security. As I'll tell you, friends, he didn't buy you to lose you. He does not indwell you. He doesn't claim you. He doesn't live inside of you. So one day that he could lose you, he won't even lose you through death. You are his. He has bought you. He has claimed you. He lives in you and will do so forever. You belong to Jesus. I think this ought to impact the way you and I live, don't you think? I think this ought to impact what I do with my body, what I do with my life. I think this ought to give me strength to fight against this prisoner I have called the flesh, I belong to Jesus because his spirit indwells me. But as if that were not enough, we see thirdly, the indwelling spirit gives life to your spirit. Note what he says here in verse 10. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. And so understand we have the spirit of God living in us. Sometimes he's even called the spirit of life, but that does not mean that you and I will therefore not die. He says here, the body is dead, doesn't he? The idea is that it's subject to death. It is a mortal body. One day it will die. It is under a death sentence. I appreciate what Lloyd-Jones said, both as a pastor and as a medical doctor, when he wrote, the moment we enter into this world and begin to live, we also begin to die. Your first breath is one of the last you will ever take. The principle of decay leading to death is in every one of us. The body is dead, the Bible says. Eventually all of our bodies will be placed in the grave if Christ tarries in his return. You one day will do battle with the ground and the ground will win. The body is dead. He tells us why. Because of sin. You see that here in verse 10? The body is dead because of sin. So death, therefore, is not uh, natural. It's unnatural. It's abnormal. It shouldn't be here. The reason it's here is because we have plunged ourselves into sin. In fact, look back in Romans chapter 5. You see this very clearly as Paul lays this out. I just want to draw your attention to verse 12 when the Bible says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, 
He's speaking, of course, of our father, Adam. And death through sin. You see that? Sin came in through Adam, and what followed sin was death. It followed on its heels. He then extends it to you and I by saying, and so death spread to all men because all men sinned. So death is here because of sin. He said to Adam, dust you are and dust you shall return. He told him the day that you eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you shall die. And because of that sin, death has now been ushered into this world. But I want to be very clear here. When verse 10 of Romans 8 says we are dead, our bodies are dead because of sin, the Bible is not saying that you are going to die as a punishment of your sin. This is not God looking at you and saying, okay, you've done a bunch of sin. I'm going to now therefore punish you because of that sin. I don't know if you heard, but Romans 8 and verse 1 says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who in Christ Jesus. I have no punishment from God. I never shall. It's been exercised on Christ himself. So my death is not a punishment for my particular sin. It's just a product of living in this fallen world. We are part of fallen creation, which is why we one day will die. You do understand, I think, that, that salvation comes in stages. Right? Redemption is not complete. There are, there are stages to this redemption. I mean, just think about what has not yet happened that needs to happen. I mean, we need to be sanctified. We need the image of God to be perfected in our lives. We need to be glorified. One day we'll be free from crying, free from pain, free from despair, free from fear, free from faithless thoughts, free from sin itself. One day he's going to take away trouble, take away trial, take away tests. One day Satan will be judged. The saints will be rewarded. War must end. Famine must end. Pestilence must end. The earth must be renewed. Redemption is not yet complete. I mean, one day, friends, I'm going to drink from the water of the spring of life. I'm going to eat from the tree of life. I'm going to celebrate at the marriage feast of the Lamb. I'm going to, as we talked about Sunday school, drink the best cup of coffee I ever imagined. One day I'm going to stroll the streets of gold. I'm going to pass through gates of pearls. I'm going to hike a holy mountain. I'm going to walk by the light of the glory of God Almighty. One day I'm going to worship alongside Abraham or Daniel or Ezekiel or John Mark. One day I'm going to bow my face along with people from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation as we worship the one true God. One day I'm going to find a spear and beat it into a pruning hook just for fun. One day I'm going to take a lion and lead it up to a calf. One day I'm going to ask 5,000 questions that I don't know the answer to. One day I'm going to explore a new, wondrous, corruption-free world. One day I'm going to sing with a chorus of angels, believe it or not. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. One day I'm going to sing with a church triumphant. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. One day I'm going to listen as my brothers and sisters who died for Jesus or took the gospel to some strange and foreign land testified to his sovereign grace throughout their life. One day, friends, I'm going to meet my great-grandfather who preached the gospel of Jesus Christ as a circuit preacher in the early 20th century in the Midwest. And one day I'll tell you I'm going to see my father face to face. One day I'm going to walk up to my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and I shall bow down at his feet and him in great love and condescension will pick me up and embrace me. One day he's going to show me his wounds and I shall consider them and what they mean to me. And one day I'm going to confess to him that he is 10,000 times greater than any of these blessings I shall joy for all eternity. My salvation is not complete. There are enemies left to defeat. There is work left to be done. The body is dead because of sin. But if God is in you, if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. Your spirit is alive. Now, there's some debate here as to what spirit we're talking about. In fact, the ESV, the the translation I'm preaching from, assumes that he's referring to the Holy Spirit, but I don't believe that to be the case because I believe he is comparing what's going to happen to my body with what has happened to my spirit. I believe he's referring to my spirit, and my spirit has been made alive because Christ dwells in me and because he is righteous. Christ is in us through his spirit, and he gives us the gift of his righteousness. He applies it to our account And therefore, I don't have to wait for the redemption of my body. I don't have to wait for my resurrection in order to be alive. My spirit has been raised from the dead. I have been born again, and my spirit shall never die. It shall live forever because Christ indwells me. 
Friend, if you are in Christ in a very real sense, you will never die. The perfect righteousness of Jesus is in your place. The presence of Jesus is in your heart. And Jesus even said at the tomb of his good friend Lazarus to his sister Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. And then he looked at her and said, do you believe this? You know her answer? Yes. Yes, Lord, I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God, who has come into this world. If you believe that, your spirit will never die. Upon death, you will immediately go, your spirit, to the presence of God himself. Christian, you will survive your last days in the hospital. You will survive your coffin. You will survive your funeral. You will even survive the judgment of a holy God. The Bible tells us we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. You're alive, and you shall forever be. I love what Dwight Moody said when he approached death. He said, soon you'll read in the newspaper that I am dead. Don't believe it for a moment. (laughs) I am more alive than ever before. Our spirit is life. Because of the indwelling spirit of Christ in us. Because of his righteousness credited to us. And even though our bodies will die, that's not our destiny. Our destiny is not to float and flit around as disembodied spirit from cloud to cloud. We hope not in the immortality of the soul, but we as Christians hope in the resurrection of the body. And so we see, fourthly, the indwelling spirit gives life to your body. This is clear For us in verse 11, the Bible says, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead as we have testified today in song. And when we say just for clarity, because I believe there is some confusion in our day, in our culture, when we as Christians say that Jesus has been raised from the dead, we do not mean that he has been raised spiritually. We do not mean that he has been raised in our heart. We do not believe that the idea of the resurrection is motivating. What we mean is that Jesus, a dead man, got up physically, historically, literally, factually, and walked out of the tomb in his body. He then went to his disciples and he said, touch me, embrace me. Does someone have a fish? I'm hungry. I want to eat. He was raised physically. And the amazing thing is that the same spirit that raised Jesus of Nazareth from the dead, the son of God himself, dwells in you. And therefore, you are guaranteed that you, like your older brother Jesus, shall be raised from the dead. The spirit will give life to your bodies. The same God that reigned over death in the days of Jesus Christ lives in you. And he will give you life, physically, forever. In fact, Paul will write more extensively about this later on in Romans 8. For you note verse 23 when he says, And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly. Some of you know that bodily groaning perhaps more than I do. You understand what he means, we're grown inwardly. But what do we do while we groan? As we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons. What does he mean? The redemption of our bodies. He will buy back our bodies from decay and corruption and this fallen state. And we shall live physically forevermore. If you're here this morning, you're not a Christian. I understand that what I'm saying now is perhaps some of the craziest ideas perhaps you've ever heard. But we believe... In fact, not only do we believe, but we consider this to be central to our lives. That those individuals who have died will one day walk out of the grave. Will one day have their physical life given back to them. We believe that physical life for those who are in Christ is no more permanent than it was for Jesus. And they too shall be raised from the dead. They shall receive life in their mortal bodies. You know why? You know why God wants to give life back to our bodies? Why he's just not simply content with our spirits being in his presence? Well, because he has given you a body so that you might glorify him with it. We already saw that in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 when it says, So glorify God with your body. In fact, earlier in the book, in 1 Corinthians 6, it says the body is for the Lord. See, God is not simply after your spirit. 
He's not simply going to let your body rot in the ground and say, I'm glad we're done with that nasty thing. Now I got what I'm really after is your spirit. No, God has created your body. He didn't create your body to get rid of it. He didn't redeem your body to get rid of it. He doesn't reside inside your body just to simply get rid of it. Rather, he wants you to use your body. He has bought your body. He indwells your body. He has secured your body. He will raise your body because he wants you to glorify him through it. He wants you to use your eyes and your hands and your feet and your stomach and your appetites and your desires and drives to bring him glory and honor. You have been created physically, not like an angel, a spiritual being, so that you might glorify God uniquely, and therefore he will raise your mortal bodies, and you shall live physically forever, as does Christ even now. In fact, this will happen when Jesus returns for us. At the moment Christ returns, the Bible says, you and I shall be raised. We, our bodies shall be raised imperishable. In fact, the Bible says in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven. And from there we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, For when he comes, he will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to his control. One day he will come riding the clouds of heaven and you shall be raised and forevermore shall live in a glorified body. The book of Daniel tells us a little bit about what it will be like. Don't tell me the Old Testament doesn't speak of the resurrection when I read Daniel 12 and verse 2. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. And you shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever and ever. One day, friends, I will look at you and you will look at me and we will see the glory which God intends for you to display. The glory for which God has made you. The glory for which God has saved you. The glory for which God has raised you. And it shall be the perfect reflection of the majesty of our Father. The indwelling spirit gives life to our body. Of course, that will happen one day. It may happen in five minutes. I'm not sure. It may happen in 10,000 years. I don't know. But I wonder if there's any impact in our present life. This truth that we shall be raised. We discussed this in Sunday school class. I believe the fact that one day I shall have a risen body will actually gives me strength today, this, this afternoon, to follow Jesus. I believe the hope of the resurrection of the body actually gives me the, the ability, the power to actually do what Jesus asked me, no matter the cost of what he calls me to do. In fact, Jesus once said in Mark chapter 10, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brother or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time and in the age to come. He says in Luke chapter 14 that whatever you give up for the kingdom will be repaid for you at the resurrection of the just. So I ask you, where do you find the strength to sacrifice for the kingdom of God? Where do you find the strength to love your enemies and to pray for those who abuse you and do good to those who hurt you? Where do you find the strength to return evil with good? Where do you find the strength not to seek things or not seek wealth or not to seek man's praise? Where do you find the strength to take your family to North Ambram like my friend Houghton did or, or to, to give up your retirement and move to an Indian reservation so you could educate poor children? Where do you find that strength? You find it knowing that whatever you do for the kingdom God is aware of and one day you shall be raised and he shall repay your sacrifice. You shall be repaid at the resurrection of the just. This truth overtook a great hero of mine named John Patton. John Patton took the gospel about 200 years ago to an island called Tana, full of cannibals. In fact, the missionaries that were there about 12 years before John Patton arrived with his family were eaten by the residents to which they took the gospel. John Patton gathered his church friends to announce that he now is taking his wife and his little child to this island of Tana, in which his good friend Mr. Dickerson said to him, The cannibals! You will be eaten by cannibals. At which John Patton responded, Mr. Dickerson, you are advanced in years now, and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in the great day, My resurrection body will rise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. I tell you, friends, if you truly trust that one day God will raise your body from the grave, I think you will be set free to follow after Jesus, no matter the cost.
No matter what he asks you to do, I believe if you trust that one day you shall be repaid 100-fold for what you have given up, I believe if you truly believe that you one day you shall shine like the brightness of the sky above forever and ever and ever, I believe God will equip you with an indomitable power to give up anything for Christ, knowing that whatever you lay down for the kingdom shall come back to you on that resurrection day. John Piper says the essence of the Christian life is not to struggle to win the reward of, God, of men, but to struggle to keep believing in the resurrection of your body and glory. Do you believe it? Do you believe that one day you shall rise from the dead? If you do, what impact has it made on you? Where can you point to in your life that says, this is how I know I believe it, because the way I live. The Apostle Paul says, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, we above all people are to be pitied as fools. You see, the indwelling spirit will give life to your body. But lastly, let's consider that the indwelling spirit obliges you to kill your sin. Notice number five, the indwelling spirit obliges you to kill your sin. We see this in verse 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put the death, the deeds of the body, you shall live. So the apostle begins here in verse 12 by saying, we have a debt. We are debtors. Some translation says we have an obligation. The obligation is not to our flesh, he says, however. We owe nothing to the flesh. In fact, the only thing that you and I owe to the flesh is warfare. We, we owe it its death because it has been trying to kill you since the day you were born. Therefore, do not ally, uh, form an ally with the flesh. Because if you serve the flesh, according to verse 13, notice this is the word of God. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. In fact, the literal translation is you are about to die. Now, when he says you will die, he is not saying that you will face physical death. Because it's clear that only those who live according to the flesh face this death. Right? Everyone, whether you live according to the flesh or according to the spirit, you're going to die. But there's a certain kind of death, he is saying, that those who live according to the flesh will experience. Of course, he is referring to an eternal separation of God himself, an eternal death. And so when he says here in verse 13, if you live according to the flesh, you will die, he is saying that if you live according to the flesh, you will face an eternal death. But if by the Spirit you kill the deeds of the body, you put them to death, you will live. You will have eternal life. We see what the Spirit obliges us to do is to put to death our sin, to kill the sin in our body. We used to call this mortification. You've heard that word before? Sometimes we use the word mortify a little bit different than what it used to be used by, to be embarrassed or to be shamed. But mortification is really to kill something. The great Puritan writer John Owen, perhaps the greatest Puritan theologian, wrote more than anyone on this idea of mortification. You could summarize his teaching by his quote, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Jesus, I think, said something likewise. In Matthew 18 and verse 8, our Lord said, if your hand causes, hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. Likewise, if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. Of course, Christ does not speak literally here, but what he is explaining is that we must be radical in our opposition to the sin that lives in our life. We must kill it. We must do violence against the deeds of the body. We must attack it. This is what Christ is telling us. You want to have life? You want to live forever? Attack the flesh. Kill your sin. Put to death the deeds of the body. I think there's a meanness to Christianity. At least there ought to be. And the meanness is not against other people, but it's against the sin that would lead us actually against other people and against God himself. We ought to do violence to our pride. We ought to kill our gossip. We ought to strike down our lust. We ought to run through our racism. And we ought to put to death our greed. I wonder, are you violent against the deeds of your body? I wonder if you are putting it to death. Or perhaps you've made peace with your eyes and your hands and your feet and your heart and your stomach and your ears when they lead you into sin, even though they will betray you. They will lead you to death. Of course, the question that comes up here when we even consider this is, oh, pastor, are you telling me I can lose my salvation? Are you saying I'm saved, but if I don't put the death, the deeds of my body, then I'm going to lose the, the salvation, the redemption, which I have inherited from Christ, which I have received from him? Well, I would just refer you back to Romans chapter 8 and verse 1. 
There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So friends, I tell you unequivocally by the authority of God's word, you cannot lose your salvation. But the question that then remains is how do you know if you're actually in Christ Jesus? How do you know you've been united to Christ? How do you know you love him? Let me ask you a different question. How do you know God loves you? Well, I think you can look a lot of places, but perhaps the most clearest place would be the cross. And we saw in Romans 5, 8, for God shows us his love in this, that while we were yet sinners, Jesus died for us. And so let's be clear, the cross is the evidence of God's love. It's not the cause of God's love. It wasn't that he didn't love you, then he had Jesus die on the cross, and then because of the cross, he started to love you. No, he loved you even before the cross. In fact, God so loved the world that he sent his son. It was out of love for us. And so the cross is evidence. It's proof that God loves us. So I just reverse the question. What is the proof? What is the evidence that you actually love God? Well, I believe one evidence is that we mortify the flesh. I think that's what Paul is saying. The evidence that I truly am in Christ, the evidence that I love Jesus Christ, is that I hate my sin because it put my Savior on the cross. And I'm not going to flirt with it. I'm going to fight against it. And I'm going to try to kill it. He's not telling us to kill our sin out of some fear of damnation. He's trying to kill, tell us to, to kill our sin out of a, a biting and growing affection for God himself. We don't make war against our sin because it's ruining our marriage or hindering my career advance because it put Jesus on the cross. And friends, if you're not making war against your sin, if you just let sin run wild in your life, I don't know why you would think that you love him. He himself said in John 14 and verse 20, if you love me, you will Obey my commandments. I think that's what Paul's telling us here. Not that we lose our salvation, but we prove, we show, we, it's evidence that we are saved by fighting against the sin in our life. One pastor said, if you live like a non-Christian, you will perish like a non-Christian because you are a non-Christian. Charles Simeon put it this way, either sin must be our enemy or God will. I understand this is sober and weighty. This is perhaps somewhat hard to hear. But it is the truth of God. And so I encourage you, brothers and sisters, do not flirt with your sin, but fight against it. Perhaps you wonder, how can we do this? How is it that we can put to death the deeds of our body? Well, I think there's a little phrase here in verse 13 that's very important for us. He says, for if you live according to flesh, you will die. But if, here it is, by the Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So you don't need to go out to the desert and live on a pole. To kill the flesh. In fact, the problem is, even if you live on a pole, I don't care if it's 60 feet tall with a 3 by 3 platform on the top, you actually bring your enemy all the way up there. He comes with you. The flesh is there. You see, the problem is in us. In fact, the problem is not even with my eyes and my hands. The problem is down in my heart. I, I could pluck out an eye, and I could still look lustfully with the other one. I could cut off a hand, I could still hit you with the other one. And so what Christ is, not, is telling us is that there's a deeper problem, and it's not simply our eyes and our hands. It's simply not our body, but it's the heart that gives rise to these sins. In fact, Jesus says, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual morality, theft, false witness, slander. So I think we need to get deeper than just the, the, the activity of sin, but we need to get to the root of sin. And the good news, friends, is that the Spirit of God lives there where your root is in order to change you. The Spirit's not outside you giving you orders, just yelping commands. Do this, do that, do this. But He actually lives in your heart to convict you and to change you and to give you the power and ability to actually overcome the sin that plagues you. You do it, but you do it by the Spirit, He says. And so how does that work? How does it that I actually put to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit? Well, I just want to turn to one passage before we end this morning. It's in Ephesians chapter 6. You're, I trust are well aware of it. You don't perhaps need to turn there, but I'm going to. Uh, we see here that the Ephesians chapter 6 is this picture of battle. It's all about the, the armor of God that we are to put on. But what I find particularly interesting for our sake this morning is verse 17, when it says, take the helmet of salvation... Okay, And then he says, and the sword of the Spirit. Now I think we're on to something. Because you know what swords are used for? It's killing. Putting things to death. And it's just not any sword, but it is the sword of the Spirit. Well, what is the sword of the Spirit? You notice what he says at the end of verse 17. Which is the Word of God. You see, the Spirit wields the Word of God in our life in order to kill the sin in our life. 
I therefore think you would be wise to study God's Word, to meditate on it, to read it, to sit under teaching of it, to store it in your heart, to find great delight. And I think you'd be wise to seek out blood-bought promises in the Word of God that you may put a sword in the Spirit's hand, that He may kill the flesh, that He may kill the deeds of the body when they rise up for you. For instance, let's say you are given to worry. You don't know what tomorrow's going to bring. You don't know how life is going to work out. Well, I believe, friends, if you put the sword in the Spirit's hand, perhaps He will bring to your mind First Peter 5, 7, which says, Cast all your cares on Him, for He cares for you. Or maybe Romans eight twenty eight that He works all things together for the good of those who love Him, who are called according to His purpose. And when you actually believe these blood-brought promises, you actually kill the flesh with the sword of the Spirit. Or perhaps you're tempted to pride, and you think, you know, I'm pretty good. You know, I'm doing a good job. I'm getting ahead in life. You know, everybody loves you, loves me. And then I think it's at that when you're tempted to pride. If you have armed the spirit, he will speak to you. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And if you believe that, you actually work to put the death, the deeds of the body by the spirit. Or maybe you're given to guilt. You think I'm too bad to, to love. I, I'm terrible. He won't love me. I've gone too far. The spirit will remind you that Jesus said to the harlot, your sins are forgiven. And if you believe that, you can put to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit. Maybe you're given to impatience. You wonder why this person in front of you won't drive a little bit faster. Maybe the line is not going at the speed which you think it ought to go. Well, perhaps the Spirit of God will bring to your mind the Lord is good to those who wait. And you believe it, and by believing it, you trust in it, you will kill the deeds of the flesh by the Spirit. Maybe you are tend to covet, and you think, I won't be happy till I get this, or this, and this, and it's just the next thing, it's just the next thing, it's just the next thing. And the Spirit of God reminds you there is great gain with godliness and contentment, or it tells you that Paul announced in Philippians 4, I have found the secret to be content in all things, for I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And when you actually believe those blood-brought promises, you put the death, the deeds of the body, by the Spirit. Maybe you're given to bitterness, and you said, I can't believe that person did that. I'll never forgive them. They betrayed me one last time. They've gone too far this time, and I'm just going to withhold the forgiveness that I ought to give them. They don't deserve that forgiveness. The Spirit, I believe, perhaps will bring to your mind the words of God when he says, love your enemies, or the words of God that says, forgive as you have been forgiven. And if you actually believe that and act on it, you begin to kill the deeds of the flesh by the Spirit. Perhaps you're given to lust, drawn into some addiction, I trust the Spirit will bring into your mind, if you sit on the Word of God, the Word that says abstain from fleshly lusts that wage war against your soul, and you believe that, you will kill the deeds of this body by the Spirit. Maybe you're given to despair. You think, I can't make it another day. It's never going to get better. This is just a, a, a cave of despair, and you're filled with sadness and grief and turmoil in your heart. I believe the Spirit will bring to your mind that God says, my mercies are new every morning. In fact, next morning, I will give you more new mercies. Or perhaps the words of the psalmist, why are you so downcast, my soul? Hope Hope in God. And when you actually believe this, you kill the deeds of the body with the sword of the Spirit. You, in fact, when you believe these truths, you announce to yourself and to God, the Spirit is within me because he is doing this good work in my life. I am free from the flesh. I do belong to Jesus. My spirit is alive. I one day will be raised from the dead because the Spirit is empowering me to kill the flesh, to put the death, the deeds of the body. So that you might live, you might show yourself and God himself, I love you. And I will therefore not flirt with the sin that put my Savior on the cross. I will fight it with everything I have by the power of the Spirit of God who indwells me. Brothers and sisters, I think you do well this afternoon to carve out 10, 15 minutes. Perhaps get alone with God and ask him, Lord, show me the deed of my body that is plaguing me. Help me by your spirit to identify the sin that I need to fight against. And once he does that, number two, I think you would do well to find some blood-brought promise in the word of God and store it in your heart. You might give a sword to the spirit who indwells you that he might do war against that sin. I think you do well. Ten minutes, fifteen minutes today. Why don't you just turn off the television, get alone, and do a little work with the Lord. If you're here this morning as we end our time if you're not a Christian, as I mentioned at the beginning of this message, you don't have the Spirit. You are still in the flesh. You do not belong to Jesus. Your spirit is not alive, nor will your body ever be. But the good news I would like to tell you is that you can receive him even now. And I just want to draw your attention as we end this morning to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 is a, an event in which uh, the Spirit of God descended upon the apostles, and it was evident to everyone, and so Peter got up and took that opportunity to preach the gospel. 
And he ended the gospel with these words in verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Their reaction is recorded in verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter's response is in verse 38. Repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. He goes on to say, for this promise is for you and for your children and for all who are fall off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So I ask you this morning, who is far off if it is not you? 2,000 years later, across the world. This promise, I believe, is for you. If you were to call out to God in heaven and say, God, I have rebelled against you, please, I need mercy, I need grace, I need help. I trust that Jesus Christ is the perfect Son of God who died on the cross for my sins, rose from the grave three days later, ascended to heaven, and one day shall return to establish his eternal kingdom. I bow my knee in repentance and faith to him, and now I need your help. Please, by the Spirit of God, indwell me and come and live in my life and give me power over that which plagues me. I believe God would do that even now. If you would call out to him, confess to him. I'd love to talk to you about this. Perhaps this after our service, you can find me and we can share and pray together. If you're a Christian, please do know that you are never alone, never will be. The Spirit of God dwells in you. And that for shall ever be your destiny. May we give praise to him even now. Father in heaven, we thank you for the great gift that you have placed within our hearts. We thank you that you have not only redeemed us from our sin, that you have not only paid the cost for our transgressions, but you have come to reside in us through your spirit even now, that we may be freed that we may have life both spiritually and physically and that we may be empowered to fight against that which Christ died for. Help us. Help us to be spiritual people that is lived by the Spirit and to rejoice in His work. Help us to believe in the resurrection from the dead that we may be radical, that we may be sold out, that we may be willing to suffer any cost for Christ and His kingdom, knowing that all that we give up shall be repaid to us on that great and glorious day. We, of course, pray that that day will come soon. And so we echo the prayers of the church that have been offered for 2,000 years. Come soon, Lord Jesus. Even now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.